Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning. My name is Morgan Eggers. I'm one of the ministers here at Plainfield Christian Church. And I'm curious, so I'm going to ask you a question to start off this morning. What are you seeking? What are you seeking right here, right now, in this specific season of your life, September 3rd, 2023? What are you seeking? Are you seeking something new? Seeking to bring back something old? Is the thing you're seeking similar to the people around you, or is the thing you're seeking completely, completely different than seemingly everyone around you? In 1997, Apple Computer Incorporated launched a new marketing campaign in which they used images of famous people throughout history, people that have kind of like left their mark on life as we know it to a certain degree. Some of these people, Albert Einstein, Einstein, Martin Luther King Jr., Amelia Earhart, Miles Davis, Lucille Ball, Kermit the Frog ended up on one. Okay, so really important people. Um, and, and so they used these images, and then when they were getting ready to, to figure out what words they were going to use for their marketing campaign, out of all the creative marketing slogans that they could come up with, they actually landed on something that's only two words, and it's not even grammatically correct. These two simple words are think different. Think different. And you can tell that Apple's goal was to tell a potential customer, hey, if what you are seeking is to think different than the people around you, we got something for you. Come on through. And Apple rode this campaign for like five-ish years or so. And then even when they pivoted and switched their marketing strategy, they kept these two words, think different, around the company, putting it on boxes, using it here um, and there. And I can assume, based on like the empire that Apple is right now, this was somewhat of a successful marketing campaign, right? I don't know how to sell computers, but I think it worked for them. Um, But I do also think that think different to a certain degree um, is kind of at conflict with the deepest parts of who we are, our very nature. And what I mean by that is this, uh, when was the last time that you were the odd one out of a group? Think about a time in which what you were seeking was completely and utterly different than everyone around you. How'd it make you feel? Was the isolation uncomfortable for you? Did you somehow enjoy it? Were there thoughts of, hey, maybe I should give up seeking this thing and start to seek what all these other people are? Was seeking something different seemingly worth it at all? And This morning, we're going to look at three stories from the Gospel of Mark, Mark's written account of Jesus' life. Um, They come from the back part of chapter 11 and all throughout chapter 12. And at this point in Mark's story, we are in the final days of Jesus' life. Right before our story picks up today, um, Jesus had just entered Jerusalem in a way that seemingly caught the attention of everyone in town, 
And then he goes to the temple and he sees the corruption that had taken place. And he just, he just gets so incredibly frustrated that, for lack of a better term, he has an outburst, right? All motivated by the corruption that was taking place at the place that was reserved for the worship of God. So Jesus is running people out of the area. He's flipping over tables. He's calling out the religious leaders for their apathy and contempt for the corruption that had taken place. And as a result, once all the dust settles from those things, we have two groups that throughout history had, for all intents and purposes, been enemies. We've got the Jewish religious leaders, and we have Roman officials. Those two groups, opposing each other for all of time, come together under the idea that Jesus is a threat. Jesus threatening their power, their influence, their money. Seemingly, their entire way of life, these two groups come together and are united under the idea that Jesus is a problem to be dealt with. So then, they come together and simply create a plan. How are we going to deal with this problem? How are we going to eliminate this threat? All of them except one person. We're going to find through our stories today that amongst kind of the sea of enemies that Jesus has, there's actually one unexpected friend. And I believe this morning, God is saying that that our call, your call and my call, is to mimic the actions of the unexpected friend, and that despite the rest, no matter what's going on around you, seek the face of Jesus. Despite the rest, seek the face of Jesus. So, let's dive in uh, to Mark this morning. We're going to start in chapter 11, verse 27, if you have a Bible and want to turn there. And while you're turning, uh, I would like to give somewhat of a caveat. Um, Throughout the back part of chapter 11 and the entirety of chapter 12, there's enough text here to legitimately write five, six, I counted up to seven sermons, okay? I am not going to do that. I don't want to talk for that long. I don't know that many words. We're going to be okay. We want to focus this morning on this one example that Mark shows us of a person that despite the rest was seeking the face of Jesus. Um, So in order to do that well, we're gonna need to skip around a little bit this morning. So our three stories aren't even really in conjunction. We'll skip around a little bit. But while we skip, we'll kind of tether ourselves uh, to one goal. And the goal is to find the answer to this question for every people group in each story. What are they Seeking. I asked you, what are you seeking? So now we together are going to find out what are they seeking in these stories. So we'll jump into story number one. Mark chapter 11, verses 27 and 28 say, While Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you authority to do this? These people come to Jesus and are mad. Our story's starting off with a bang. These people are frustrated and upset that Jesus arrived into Jerusalem on a donkey and was received like a king. They're upset at his actions at the temple because they're seen as a direct threat to them and a direct call out to them. So they come to Jesus and they're just angry. And Jesus answers uh, them this way in verse 29. He says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. So in this answer back, Jesus is referencing John here, which is his cousin, John the Baptist. And you'll remember that John went around all of Israel teaching people about God, telling them that the Messiah, that Jesus was on his way, and also baptizing them for the forgiveness of their sins. And countless people had been baptized by John, including Jesus. So he was, he was held in high regard by pretty much everybody. So you can see this question kind of puts the religious leaders in somewhat of a bind. Thankfully, Mark gives us a little peek behind the curtain of their heart as they're trying to formulate an answer. Um, so they say this in verse 31. Uh, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, and then Mark stops. Storytelling done, record scratch, slam on the brakes, because Mark wants us to know that they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So if they said John's baptism was legitimate and from heaven, they would be legitimizing John and his actions, and by legitimizing John, you were also legitimizing Jesus. Jesus learned from John. They knew each other. They were related. Jesus was baptized by John. To legitimize John is also to legitimize Jesus. And remember, that is not what they want to do. But then the inverse of this, if they refuse to legitimize John, then they have a whole crowd of people who potentially were baptized by him and saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. We thought this guy was legit. We thought this guy was doing the work of God. We thought he was from heaven. What do you mean now all of a sudden he's not? And that is what Mark tells us they fear. They fear the people turning on them. So our question, what are they seeking? Our answer is approval. And it makes sense like on the surface level, that they wouldn't want a big crowd of people upset and like a riot to ensue, that kind of stuff. That makes sense. But I do think this seeking approval goes a touch deeper than that. I think they were concerned about reputations a lot. I think it's safe to say they wanted to be seen by the people as good. They wanted to be seen as responsible. They wanted to be seen as capable. And then when I read this story... I realize, oh, hold on, I want to be seen as good, and I want to be seen as responsible, and I want to be seen as capable, and then it just kind of hurts. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think those three things are completely antithetical to the way of Jesus. Please don't hear me saying that. Um, all I am saying is when our priorities completely get out of line, when we swap seeking the face of Jesus for seeking the approval of others, it hurts our relationship not only with Jesus, but also with other people. And you all know this reality that it's, it's simple, right? If, you're, if your goal changes, your outcomes do as well. So if, if I'm focused on one goal and everything I see is going right towards that one goal, but then I slightly kind of get off base. 
my objective changes and I lose sight of the original goal and life happens and then this happens and that happens and then I learn this new thing and I find this new thing and I meet this one person and then all of a sudden I find myself way over here, way far from where I started, way far from where I want to go and I have absolutely no clue how to get back. Life's just like that sometimes. My sophomore year of high school, uh, I was in art class, and we had this painting assignment, painting project, um, and, and the rules were simple. The assignment was simple. Find a picture of a natural landscape and paint it. Easy peasy. So I walk over to the teacher's desk, and I flip through the box of pictures that she has, find this breathtaking mountain landscape, high peaks, just kind of they went on forever, the valleys were deep, and there was fog and sunset and trees, and it was just beautiful, all right? So I study it, and I study it, and I study it, and then the next day was when we were actually going to paint. So I put the picture back in the box, I've got my game plan in my head, and I go home, come back to school the next day, go to the box, the picture's gone. Can't find it anywhere. Flipping through like six times. I'm looking under tables, every cabinet that's in the room. Cannot find it. And my teacher offers to print me out another one. She's like, hey, I've got it on my computer. Just let me do it. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm 16 years old. I got a mind to steal. Don't you worry about me. <laughs> All right, there ain't no trouble. I'm going to be fine. Um, so I go back to my seat, and I just get to work. Just paint, 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 paint. And by the end of class, hands up, I'm done. And I'm proud. I thought it was good. Um, so then my, uh, one of my best friends in the entire world, Nathan, is kind of sitting across from the table from me. And he gets up out of his seat and walks around and, and puts his hands on the table and says, hey, you should put a boat in there. <laughs> and I'm just like, bro, like, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Uh, these are clearly mountains. I genuinely have no clue what you're talking about. And Nathan, just so incredibly gracious from the depths of his heart, goes, you sure? And then I just kind of looked back, and I realized I didn't have a mountain landscape at all. I actually had the world's most awkward ocean landscape of all time, okay? Because uh, these peaks that were supposed to be really high and go on forever, they were just kind of like, eh. And there wasn't any depth at all, and the valleys that were supposed to be so deep were just like not deep at all and relatively flat at the bottom, if I'm honest. Uh, I will say, Nathan's suggestion of the boat really tied it all together. I did put it in. It was incredible. Um, I didn't have my original picture, I didn't have my goal, and my painting turned into something I never, ever intended it to be. And I would imagine uh, there would be some religious leaders that would say a similar kind of thing. I'm okay to say that most of those leaders probably didn't start in their position with the sole intention of seeking the approval of others. I'm okay to say that. But then over time, as so often happens, they just kind of took their eye off what God had called them to do, and they got a taste of power and of position and of money and of influence, and then all of a sudden they're over here, they're cornering Jesus, something they never thought that they would ever do. And if you uh, walked in the doors this morning and you feel like you're over there, 
You feel like you have been going down this path and you don't even know how it happened, yet somehow you find yourself way over there, far from your initial goal, somewhere you never, ever thought you would be. I'd like to tell you there's hope. That the story of your life isn't over. Because the reality is the grace that Jesus offers you, offers me, offers us day by day is stronger than anything and everything we could possibly find on our own, whether we found it on purpose or on accident. Jesus is still seeking you no matter what you've been seeking for however long. So story one. Let's skip ahead to story two, which now we'll enter into chapter 12, verse 13, if you'd like to flip there. And in between story one and story two, Jesus remains at the temple where story one took place, and he tells people there a parable. And now Jesus used parables. There were these stories with a lesson. They taught people more about God, more about themselves, and how to kind of live in the kingdom of God. And the gist of this parable that Jesus said was, hey, these religious leaders, they've really screwed it up. God gave them something sacred, something special, and their greed and their lust for power just completely obliterated it from what it was intended to be. So you can imagine Jesus isn't gaining a lot of friends as he keeps talking, right? And so these leaders hear Jesus tell this parable, and they actually retreat. And they kind of send in plan B, the backup plan. Let's send in the backups and see if this other angle works. So we'll pick up story two in verse 13, where it says, Later they, being the religious leaders from story one, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So these leaders come up with a, if I'm honest, seemingly good plan. It's strategic. By sending the Pharisees, who are the elites of elite Jewish religious leaders, and the Herodians, who are people with power, who are deeply loyal to the empire of Rome, they kind of have Jesus surrounded. They have representatives from the ethnic and religious side of Jesus' life. And then they also have representatives from the political power that ruled the entire world in which Jesus lived. I can't really think of another angle that you would want to, you know, come in from. So then... They think they have all their bases covered, and they asked, they asked Jesus this question, hey, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And if Jesus says, oh, yeah, sure, pay Caesar, who cares, no big deal, he is seemingly just disregarding his people, his heritage, his family, and kind of getting hiding behind the bully on the playground. But then the opposite is true. If he joins his people and says, no, it is not right to pay taxes to Caesar. If he joins his people, he's spitting in the face of the bully on the playground, and that usually doesn't go well. Right? So either answer, Jesus loses. They're two completely different answers, but they lead to the same end, making Jesus an enemy, and people in power can often have their enemies snuffed out just like that. So our question, what are they seeking? Uh, it's not the approval of others this time. Uh, however, it is simply to remove 
Jesus. If they can make Jesus a clear and objective enemy of either the religious system or the imperial system, then he can be gone. And their desire for approval and greed and power and all that kind of stuff has led them to try and trick a man into being arrested and killed. They were trying to trick Jesus into being arrested and killed. Imagine if the sheriff of Hendricks County walked up to you later this afternoon and said, hey, you want to flip a coin? Heads I win, tails you lose. You're not going to do that. It's insane, right? But uh, if we're honest with ourselves, and I would like to be this morning, um, have you ever tried to do something similar to this? Obviously, not this exactly, but have you ever been so mad at somebody, so frustrated, so upset, that you were secretly deep down hoping that they would say something, that something would happen to which then you could point your finger and say, ha ha, I told you, bad egg from the very beginning, and I saw it before all of you all. I was right. I assume if you grew up with any number of siblings, the answer to this question is yes, at least once. <laughs> I have younger twin sisters, so I was always outnumbered, two to one, but I was rarely wise enough to avoid stirring the pot, which is interesting in hindsight. Um, but I can remember trying to poke and prod them just right with the hope that they would start a fight with me, and then I could tell mom and dad, hey man, that wasn't me. They started that. My hands are clean. I'm just here. I am just here. I was caught up in this, this constant state of trying to do this. And I want to be clear, to my sister's credit, it rarely worked. Well done, girls. But that didn't stop me from trying. So I was caught in this cycle of trying to start something or prove how smart I am by ending something that it, it enveloped almost my entire relationship with my sister's was caught in the same cycle that the Pharisees and that the Herodians and all these other leaders were caught in, and it just didn't have to be that way, but I let myself become so combative. And when we become combative, and the people around us also become combative, it's really hard for us to have even an ounce of grace. And maybe... Who knows, maybe our goal, the thing we set out to do, was to be a person who was kind and gracious. But then over time, this person broke your heart. That job wasn't anything that you signed up to do. Maybe a church hurt you. Whatever it is, things happen in life, and as they go, you just, get, you just got a little more jaded, a little more jaded, a little more jaded. Your heart, day by day, just getting a little harder and harder and harder, and then you've found yourself just constantly ready for some fight. Maybe it's with someone that you interact with on a daily basis, or maybe it's with Jesus, and you're just waiting for Jesus to say something that you don't like so you can say, ha-ha, I knew you were a bad guy from the get-go. And listen, this might be true of you this morning. It might not. Um, but if it is, if your heart's in that place, and you know as soon, or you feel as, as soon as you walk out that door, you know exactly what's going to happen, um, 
I'd like to just tell you, Jesus is constantly making broken things whole. He is constantly breathing new life into things that have looked dead for years and years and years. And Jesus wants to do that to you right now. And when we, despite the rest, seek his face, that is exactly what happens. Paul writes um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Life for the Pharisees and the Herodians and those other religious leaders didn't have to be caught up in their cycle of seeking power and seeking gain and seeking position and fueling their addiction to anger. It didn't have to be that way, but that's what they were seeking. They were holding on to things as tight as they possibly could rather than seeking Jesus. All but one. You remember I said there was an unexpected friend. And we'll pick him up in chapter 12, verse 28. Story 3, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And can you tell the immediate differences in this man and literally everyone else that's talked to Jesus in our previous two stories? Mark gives us no reason to believe that this guy had any ulterior motives. His question wasn't a trick question. It wasn't full of false compliments or loaded with just a whole bunch of nonsense. He just simply comes to Jesus and asks a question. And Jesus answers him, and he says this. This or the most important one, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus offers just a simple response. The most important commandment, the entire Old Testament Wrapped up into one thing, Jesus says, it can be in a few words. God is the only God. Love him with all you got. And love your neighbor just like you'd love yourself. So then the teacher of the law answers Jesus. And notice his uh, response and his attitude in this. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right. It's the first time we've heard anything remotely close to that, right? saying that God is one and there is no other but him, to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So our question, what are they seeking? What is this man seeking? It's clear to me that whatever it is he's seeking, it's not even close to the same thing everybody else is seeking right? Although he could have been a part of those circles, those groups of people that came to trick Jesus, to have Jesus arrested and killed. Those were his co-workers. Some of them were probably his friends. Yet, he was not seeking that, but he was simply seeking Jesus. Despite the rest, despite what his co-workers, despite what his friends, his neighbors were doing, he was seeking the face of Jesus. 
I'd like to draw just, I think there's three key lessons, three helpful tips uh, from story three that can kind of follow us home, uh, that we can kind of attach to our day-to-day life. And I want to be clear before I get into them, um, these aren't things that will make Jesus love you more. It's impossible. Jesus loves you so much more than you can possibly imagine, right? These things will not increase Jesus' love for you. However, if you're looking for something different, if you're seeking the face of Jesus, if you want to know what he has for your life, I do think these are helpful things. So our first one is to simply go alone. I love church. I love Sunday mornings. I love corporate worship, shaking hands, smiling, laughing, seeing people I haven't seen in a week. I love it, I believe in it, and I always will. But this isn't the end of our week as followers of Jesus. We are sent from this place to love and to serve other people, and a part of seeking the face of Jesus is making time for you and Jesus in a quiet place, to go alone. And listen, I know life is busy. I don't even have kids. I can't imagine how busy that makes your world. I get it. Kids to feed, errands to run, job responsibilities to do. I understand. But I promise you, when we seek the face of Jesus and when we go alone, it gives our soul the capability to just slow down. Because a hurried soul is a soul that can't listen. Can't listen to yourself and especially can't listen to the things that God might want to tell you. It's the first thing, go alone. Which leads us to the second thing, uh, which is simply to ask Jesus what he wants for your life. Ask Jesus what he wants for your life. Um, I'd like to just be like blatantly honest, call a spade a spade. This is hard. Because sometimes the questions that I feel like I need to ask Jesus are really huge and like seemingly existential. But then sometimes the questions I should ask Jesus are really small and seemingly as insignificant as sand at the beach. And then there are other times where my heart is just so murky, and it's just messy, and nothing makes sense. I can't even form a question to ask Jesus. This is tough. But the beautiful thing is, Jesus' heart doesn't have the same problems that ours does. He doesn't leave. He doesn't move. He's constantly drawing people back to himself. He's with the downtrodden, with the brokenhearted. Jesus doesn't move, ever. And just like a quick aside, I suppose. Uh, Notice the teacher, when he asked Jesus his question, he didn't even ask like one really specific thing. He just simply said, hey Jesus, what do you think life is really all about? Seems like a good place to start. So then our third thing that we can, our third lesson that we can draw is to simply take it to heart. When Jesus answers the teacher's question, the teacher says the words, you are right. Take what Jesus says to heart. Let them seep into your soul. Let them change who you are and who you want to be. Jesus' words have meaning. 
They're never flippant. They always have value for your life right now and tomorrow. So whatever it is Jesus says to you, take it to heart. Because I promise that it's got your best interest in mind. I'd like to close uh, just simply by, is this me? It's not you guys, you promise? <laughs> I'd just like to look at the end of story three. That's it. Just what Jesus says to the teacher after they talk about Jesus' answer. Uh, and he says one sentence, so, so light, seemingly insignificant. He just says, um, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. It's just one sentence. It's light. It's not that many words, and none of them really are that big. But I think it packs a lot of weight. Because Jesus saw the heart, saw what that man was seeking, saw what the teacher was seeking, even though he could have been a part of the groups that were mistreating Jesus and mistreating the religious system of Israel as a whole, Jesus knew he could see his heart. He could see what he was seeking. And now, this man and Jesus agreed on three things. They both agreed that God is the only God. They both agreed that you should love God with everything that you've got, and they both agreed that you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Je even though they agreed on those three things, Jesus still said, hey, you're, you're, you're close. You're not quite there yet. Which leaves us with the question, hey, those, the three things, they seem pretty big. So what's this guy missing? Jesus, why is he close? Why is he not there? Why is he not in the middle of the kingdom of God? And the reality is, the kingdom of God will always be built around those things. They will always be fundamental to the kingdom of God. But the kingdom will always be built on accepting Jesus. Accepting Jesus who is really man and really God, who was really born, and he really walked and talked and tripped and ate and played, and then he really died, and then he really rose again accepting that that Jesus is enough for you to have a relationship with the creator of the universe that knows your name and loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Which is uh, why we always have this communion time every Sunday. So if you have your elements, I'd ask you to get them out, please. Every week, we set aside time so that you right where you are, me right where I am, can just recenter ourselves on, oh yeah, our goal is to seek the face of Jesus. What are we seeking? We want to seek the face of Jesus. And the reality of life is going to be hard, right? Things aren't clean. They're, all, they're always harder than they need to be, seems like. But every week, this gives us the opportunity to just come back under that umbrella, be able to walk out those, those doors as sent people. And this morning, if you have never taken the next step to accept Jesus, to follow Jesus, to fully enter the kingdom of God, we're going to have members of our prayer team around the perimeter of the room. We would love to, to walk in that process with you, 
to figure out what it looks like exactly for you to really, truly, with everything that you've got, follow Jesus. We had somebody get baptized last service. It was awesome. But then this morning, if, if you walked in those doors and you're way over there and you didn't mean to be, we'd love to pray for you, pray with you. Pray that God's Spirit would come and just kind of refocus you, lead you out of whatever's going on because we believe he can and we believe he will because the reality is if Jesus was kind of sitting right down here in front this morning and he was here and I asked him the same question that I asked you all, what are you seeking? He'd just kind of smile, look at me and says, I'm seeking you. Then he'd turn around I'm seeking you, and I'm seeking you, and I'm seeking you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. Because the reality is, Jesus was seeking you so much, he was willing to give up everything that he ever knew, which is more than we can fathom. Leave heaven, come to earth, to die so that we might one day live with him again and have life to the fullest. And this time, we get to celebrate and remember that reality that Jesus was seeking you, is seeking you, and will always seek you. Take the bread on your own. I'll pray, and then we'll take the juice together. we believe in you. This morning we ask a handful of things. Grow our capacity to love. Grow our capacity to serve. God, grow our capacity and our desire to seek your face. Whatever that looks like when we go home and we go our separate ways and go back to life's headaches and heartaches and joys and everything in between. God, show us what it's like to seek your face. Thank you that you were willing to give up everything so we could have this moment and one day have life eternal with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.